Open your Bibles up to James chapter 1, please. James 1. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1208. Page 1208. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, pull out one of those pew Bibles, open it up to page 1208 to James chapter 1. This morning we'll be speaking from verses 22 and following. Since last summer, the elders have been engaged in a regular conversation, time of prayer and discussion with regard to the topic of disciple-making here at Foothill Bible Church. We have been engaged in some self-evaluation, you might say, as to how good a job are we doing fulfilling really the only mandate that Christ gave us that is to go into the world and make disciples until he returns. So we have been taking our rather hard-nosed look at ourselves and, and really examining various ministry areas of the church, various programs and so forth, and asking ourselves, are these accomplishing to the best effect possible the mandate to make disciples? And our conclusion has been that no, we are not. We are not accomplishing as effectively the very task that Christ has given us to do. And it was along those lines that last October we introduced to you a book titled The Trellis and the Vine. You remember that book? I know October seems like a you know, a millennium ago, but it was really just a few months. In October, we handed out over 200 copies of that book. We encouraged people to read them. And in the providence of God, the author, Colin Marshall, was going to be here in the United States for some, some conferences. And we got the crazy idea of calling him up and seeing if he'd come and speak with us. And as I say, in the providence of God, he agreed and, and spent 10 days here at Foothill, if you'll remember. We had a number of meetings. Many of you were invited to them. Some were more private than others, but there were a number of very wide open and public sessions. And, and Colin Marshall's time here with us was exceedingly valuable as he just helped us really think through the process of disciple-making and what kind of job we were doing. The conclusion that we fundamentally came away with is that we were very programmatic oriented as a church. In fact, we're very good at programs. God has given us the ability to create some really significant programs, and he's given us the administrative ability to fit all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together like an intricate ballet. But as we thought about these things, one thing we noticed was that a programmatic approach to ministry is essentially a professional approach to ministry. And that more and more of the ministry was being handled by paid professionals. And that more and more what we were inadvertently doing was communicating to people that to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be faithful, meant to come and support the program. And that's not the right thing to do. It's not the approach that the New Testament would have us take. The work 
of building the vine, of growing the vine is more difficult than the work of building the trellis. The trellis is the program, and there is a need for trellis, to be sure. Vines have to have something to grow on. But it's easy to build trellis. It's hard to grow vine. Being a vine grower is a, is a hands-on experience. And it is, to a great degree, humanly impossible. It requires the intervention of the very Spirit of God as He works in our lives and works among us as we are one and one together growing in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a spiritual endeavor that requires us to depend actively upon the Holy Spirit of God. It's with all of those thoughts and more running in my mind in the background that I opened my Bible up this week to begin to see what James would have for us and that I might learn myself and then come and share with you. And so we arrive here at verse 22 of chapter 1. I was struck, by the way, as I read and meditated on these verses as to how directly this passage speaks to the very things that have been going on in the minds of the elders and certainly in my mind over the last months. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 22. Prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So I read that passage over and over again and was thinking about what James was communicating here. It came to my mind that there are really two common and erroneous measures of what it means to be a disciple that, that James is addressing here. Two common and erroneous means of what it measures, rather, of what it means to be a disciple. And I want to share them with you this morning so that in this process we can kind of realize the impossibility of making disciples in our own strength. So at the end of this all, we realize how desperately we must lean upon the grace of God in Christ mediated to us through His Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at the first erroneous measure of what it means to be a disciple, beginning in verse 22. I have it here for you on the back of your worship bulletins, by the way, if you want to follow along that outline. The first erroneous measure is, is that Bible knowledge does not equal being a disciple. Bible knowledge does not equal being a disciple. 
Now, good Bible teaching is essential to discipleship. It is an essential component to discipleship. Jesus himself said when he gave this great commission about making disciples, he prescribed the means by which we do it, right? At the end of Matthew 28. He said it is by baptizing and by what? Teaching. Teaching them all things that he had taught his disciples. And so teaching is absolutely an integral part of what it means to make disciples, to be sure. What Christ had taught to his early disciples, they have recorded for us, and they are in the pages of the New Testament. And so the, it's definite and an essential and non-negotiable that Bible teaching is part of the disciple-making process. Absolutely no question about it. But as James points out to us here, the Bible knowledge that we accumulate has to result in outward activity. It has to change. It has to transform us as the Spirit of God mediates it to our heart. If it doesn't transform us, it is a waste, and yea, it is worse than a waste. It is a spiritually damning delusion, James says in verse 22, right? To be a mere hearer, James says, verse 22 at the end, is to delude yourself, to be deluded. Now, the word hearers is a very interesting word. It appears in only one other place in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 2 and in verse 13. In both places where this word appears in the New Testament, it has its essential classical Greek meaning. And that is to be an attentive listener. To be an attentive listener. That's the idea. The word was used, interestingly enough, in classical Greek to refer to people who would attend lectures by philosophers or public speakers. They were the hearers. Wherever there was a new lecturer in town moving around the circuit, people would come to listen to what the lecturer had to say, and they would listen very attentively, very carefully. They might even take copious notes. This can't help but remind me of an incident from my own life from three decades ago. Three decades ago, I was in commercial banking. That is my original background. And one of the things in commercial banking that I enjoyed so much was the opportunity to visit customers who we were lending money to and to take a tour of their facilities and to see how things were made. I'm just fascinated with how stuff is put together, and I love that show on TV, How Is It Made? Well, about three decades ago, I had the opportunity to tour a factory that made coffee. And I love coffee, and so it was a very wonderful tour. And as I was touring the factory, we went to a certain area there, and I noticed there was this one guy who had a room all by himself, and he had a coffee pot and a bean grinder. And I asked, what does that fellow do? And they said, he is a coffee taster. A coffee taster? What does a coffee taster do? Well, he takes samples of the beans that are coming in from South America, and he takes them to his little office, and he grinds them, and he makes a pot of coffee with them. 
He then pours a cup of coffee and he takes a sip of it, hot. Then he waits until it cools to room temperature and then he takes another sip of it and then he lets it go stone cold and he takes another sip of it. Between each sip, he spits it out and washes his mouth out with some clear water. Now, this was three decades ago. This guy made $50,000 a year as a coffee taster. Apparently, his taste buds were quite good. You know, a lot of people approach preaching like Bible tasters, like that coffee taster. They become professional sermon tasters. They go here and there to listen to the favorite preacher or maybe over the Internet or down onto their iPod or however it is that they can listen to the latest sermon. They all have their favorites. They might even take copious notes, jotting down virtually every word that they hear. But very little of it translates into behavioral change. They might as well be taking a sip of coffee and spitting it back out again. It's done them no good. It's a danger to become like the philosophers of Athens, as Luke tells us in Acts 17.21, who used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. To become a sermon taster. Jesus said in Luke 11 and verse 28, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Keep it, the old King James. Do it. So how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? Well, we're a church that emphasizes Bible teaching. Isn't that true? We emphasize Bible teaching and rightly so. There is also a great accumulation of Bible knowledge among us as a people. And it's necessary for discipleship to be sure. But the strong emphasis on Bible teaching and Bible knowledge can become twisted. It can become twisted into assuming that because someone knows a lot about the Bible, that they are indeed a follower of Jesus Christ. To equate Bible knowledge with spiritual maturity. And it is a fatal mistake. A fatal mistake. Knowledge that has little practical day-to-day influence on our lives, according to James is a spiritually deluding influence. We become careless, hardened to the Word of God. It doesn't penetrate anymore. We begin to think that knowing is all that's important. Knowing. Let me ask you a question. How many sermons in a week do you need to hear? How many sermons do you actually need to hear? Fascinating question, isn't it? How many can you process in one week? 
Or do we become like those who are so used to a diet of rich food that it no longer appeals to us any, anymore? Interesting question, isn't it? Fascinating question. If we're not careful, we can inadvertently train ourselves to equate listening with growing, knowledge with maturity. And it's a dangerous assumption. A very dangerous assumption. My friends, every time you hear the Word of God, you hear it preached, you hear it taught, you hear it read, or you read it yourself. You are accountable. I am accountable to Christ for His Word. Every single time. We either put it into practice or we are just a hearer, a sermon taster. And that's a place we don't want to be. We don't want to be. We can help each other in these things. We can help each other. We can help each other by spending time together talking about what we've heard so that we can remember it longer than 30 minutes. It's always fascinating to me to hang around here after on a Sunday morning to talk to people at 1230, quarter of one, and, and ask, what, do you, what did you get out of the sermon? Sermon? Sure. How about the big idea? Big idea? Do you remember anything? Fascinating. Fascinating. Scary fascinating. Scary fascinating. We can help each other. We can help each other by, by talking it through Sunday afternoon, throughout the week, processing it together. Hey, you know, when I listened and, and he was talking about this, this is what I was thinking about. What were you thinking about? You know. But we can help. We can pray together. We can exhort one another to action. We can actually do ministry together based on the word that we've heard. This is how we move from being merely hearers who delude themselves into what James calls doers of the word. James illustrates, by the way, the foolishness in verses 23 and 24 of one who hears and forgets. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he says, verse 23, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Talks about someone who gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror, stares at it for a while, walks away, and makes none of the necessary adjustments. I can remember a time on a Sunday morning. My alarm went off as it does quite early. I staggered out of bed and into the bathroom, threw on the lights, kind of looked into the mirror. I didn't have my glasses on, so I got to get close. I had bags under my eyes and... I was exhausted. And instead of following my normal morning routine, which is to shave first and then shower, I 
just turned the shower on and kind of staggered into the shower to wake me up. Well, I finished the shower, got dressed, my wife made my breakfast, um, everything else was normal that morning, and off I drove, got my car to drove, drive to come over here. And on the way over, I happened to rub my face, and I realized, that's kind of prickly. <laughs> then I was caught in a dilemma. What do I do? Do I turn around and go home, or do I come? If you give me a dollar after, I'll tell you what I did. Okay? <laughs> We have to be careful. It's foolishness to look into a mirror, see a problem, and do nothing about it. It's a greater level of foolishness bordering on, on spiritual suicide. To look into the mirror of the Word of God, to see our sin and to fail to take appropriate action. In contrast, verse 25, the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. James gives us a contrast here. Instead of the person who looks into the mirror, sees the problem, walks away, and never does anything about it, is the man who peers in. He says, the, the word is a fascinating word. It, it's to stoop and bend over and to, and to peer into it. Rather than give the scriptures a fleeting attention, this man stares into the gospel called here the perfect law of liberty. He stares into the gospel. He ponders the gospel until it makes such an impression on his soul that it transforms his behavior. This is the right way to approach the Word of God. Not to merely listen, not to merely take some notes, but to bend over, look close, stare long enough until it transforms you. Until it transforms me. My friends, Bible knowledge is not a mark of discipleship. For that matter, neither is church involvement. Neither is church involvement. Again, this is an, an area that's a, a good thing, but this good thing can become a shallow substitute for what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That takes us to our second erroneous measure. Church involvement does not equal being a disciple. Verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, to be religious, the idea here is to participate in religious activities, to be in the right place at the right time, to show up when the doors are open. It's easy, by the way, to seem religious. Did you know that? It's really not very difficult at all. You just kind of hang around for a while and you'll pick up the lingo You'll learn the right external behaviors, at least on Sunday morning. You can kind of figure it out. When do I stand up? When do I sit down? I need to sing the right things, so I'll sing the right things. I'll bring my Bible with me. I might even take notes. I look around. A lot of people take notes. I'll take notes. Offering plate goes by. Put something in it. 
I can become acclimated to the culture. I want to fit in. I, I can figure it out. It's all externals. It's just the externals of an evangelical culture. That's all. All that going on and spiritually dead on the inside. Spiritually dead. These two verses, by the way, at the end of chapter 1 here. Wow. These things rip it wide open. They rip it wide open. They... They elaborate on what it means to be a doer of the word. Do you know that? What's it mean to be a doer of the word, not a mere hearer? Well, thank you for asking. Let me show you here in just a couple of verses. This is not all-encompassing, all-inclusive. These are just a few illustrations of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. First is self-control. Self-control. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Wow. James goes right for the juggler vein. Did you ever notice that? You know, he doesn't just shadow box around the edges. He reaches out and grabs you by the throat and starts squeezing. Jesus tells us that the The mouth, the tongue, speaks out of the overflow of the heart. Isn't that true? The mouth reveals what's inside. James tells us here, verse 26, that the man who can't bridle his tongue is deceived as to his own spiritual condition. His religion is worthless. This is shocking. This is shocking. And the reason it's shocking is because sins of the tongue among the people of God, are so widely accepted. So widely accepted. We kind of look at it as little white lies, you know. It's probably not a good idea, but everybody does it. James says, just like a horse needs a bit and a bridle to bring it under control, so you and I need a bit and a bridle to bring our tongues under control. Paul says, Ephesians 4, verse 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it may give grace to those who hear. Wow. We made our children memorize that verse. That's the kind of thing parents do, right? When your kids grow up in a Christian home, you have to memorize verses like Ephesians 4.29. We put it in layman's terms. If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything. When your mouth is open, let what comes out of your mouth be be a channel of grace to the people around you. Wow. By the way, as I was... Studying through this passage, I looked at a number of commentaries. They were all in universal agreement that what James is talking about here is the critical and judgmental speech so common among the people of God. That's what he's addressing. 
He's addressing that kind of critical speech that tears at the unity of the body of Christ. Shreds the fabric of a local church. Fascinating to me, by the way, because James was written so early in the first century, right? The oldest writing of the New Testament. And he's dealing with this issue that still plagues us almost 2,000 years later. You'd think we'd get it right. (laughs) But each generation struggles with the same thing. The same thing. My friends, this has no place among us. None. And every one of us are guilty. Every one of us have engaged at one time or another in this kind of behavior. We have used our mouths not as channels of grace, but we have used our mouths to tear down our brother and sister in Christ, to express our displeasure, our personal preference, our pride-filled criticisms. We're all guilty, every one of us. James says it has no place among us. You see it? Look again at verse 26. If we can't bridle our tongue, he says we are deceiving ourselves. We may think we're followers of Jesus Christ. We may think we're spiritually mature. And he says we are self-deceived and all of our religious activity is worthless. Worthless. Those are strong words. Really strong words. We need to help each other. We must help each other. Because we're all susceptible to it. The crud that comes out of our mouth pours out of our hearts. And there is not a person here whose heart is pure before the the Lord. None of us. We depend on Christ and Christ alone. And the reason we depend on Christ and Christ alone is because we are wicked. Wicked. But we can help each other. We can can help each other by being willing to confront. To say to that person, that kind of talk is not edifying. That kind of talk is not a channel of grace. Would you please stop? Oh. Kidding me? If I did that to somebody, they might turn on me. Yeah, they might. They might. Pray to God they wouldn't. I pray to God if you hear me engaging in it, and when you hear me engaging in it, that one of you would be bold enough to say something to me. Say, David, that talk is not a channel of grace, it is not helpful. And I pray God would grant me the humility to hear the rebuke. And to put a bridle on my tongue. My friends, we have to do this. It's not negotiable. It is the word of God. The second area that James begins to rip it open for us here. Verse 27, he says, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. Compassion. Self-control, now compassion. 
What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Does it mean to show up to church whenever the doors are open? No, it means to to express self-control. It means to have compassion. Compassion for people in their hour of need. Widows and orphans. The most helpless segment of society in the first century. There were no social safety nets in the first century. To be a widow, to be an orphan, was to be completely helpless and dependent upon others to care for you. The church made its name in its early centuries by its compassion for the helpless segments of society. Often they lacked the barest essentials, food and clothing. The church would provide. Christians would provide. Meet their needs. The reason this is such an important test, by the way, of of one's discipleship, because Jesus said in John 13 and verse 35 that they will know that you are my disciples by your what? By your love. By your love for one another. See, to care for those who cannot return the care is to begin to manifest the kind of love that Christ has demonstrated to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? At a point of our greatest helplessness, God extended himself to us. And he says that you will prove to be my disciples and the world will look on and will acknowledge that you are my disciples when you begin to express that kind of love. Love for people who cannot return the favor. Well, in modern society, widows and orphans, they still have needs, but they don't, they're not at the level they were in the first century, to be sure. We live in a time when there are social nets underneath things. People have access to clothes and food. Let me apply the principle, if you'll let me. Let me apply the principle here at at Foothill. There are people here who are being squeezed, pressured by illness by unemployment, by family problems, by fractured relationships. Their lives are being squeezed and pressured. They're in a hard, hard place. And we can reach out in compassion to them. What's our personal response when we hear about someone who's suffering? Are we willing to Extend ourselves to meet their needs. Knowing that it's unlikely they will be able to give anything back. It's hard. I'm very challenged by this. These words I find so very, very challenging. Especially when the demands upon my time are so intense. My friends, the most valuable commodity we have here in the 21st century is not gold, but time. Time. 
It is what is in short supply for all of us. How many times have you thought, I would really like to get together with that person or that couple, but I just don't know when to fit it in? Hey, could we get together? And I'd like to know you a little better. And sure, let's get our calendars out. Well, it can't be this week. Can't be next week. Oh, not the week after that either. I think I can fit you in eight weeks from now. It's like scheduling an appointment with a surgeon. And we're here in the body of Christ. I know I'm not alone in this, but but I feel this intense challenge. And I know that you do too. I know you do. One of our goals as elders in this coming year and beyond is to try to figure out a way to simplify the church calendar. To simplify the church calendar so that we are not contributing to this frantic pace of life. This sense in which we are overbooked, constantly running, never able to slow down long enough to be alone with ourselves, let alone be alone with anyone else. We don't want church activities to be the cause of people's overcrowded schedules. What it looks like, how it works, I don't know. It will be a challenge. Self-control. Compassion. Finally, the end of the verse, 27. Holiness. Holiness. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to keep oneself unstained by the world. Personal holiness. All the religious activity in the world won't amount to a hill of beans unless we are persistently and aggressively seeking to walk in holiness. It's not negotiable. It is not negotiable. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And that, my friends, means that, that we don't gain purity, by the way, by abandoning society and huddling together in a Christian fort and hollering out some gospel truth to those who happen to wander close to the wall. Hello down there! Let me tell you about Jesus. But it's so easy to slip into that. So easy. By the way, we don't gain in purity by throwing away our television either. Or refusing to go to the movies. We need to make entertainment choices that don't undercut our gospel message. We need not fill our eyes and our ears with perversions. But merely dealing with the externals, merely taking a stick and whacking a few leaves off the tree does not dig out the root. Purity is not a matter of externals. It is a matter of the heart. It is easy to create the facade of holiness. It is far more difficult to walk in the Spirit than to be truly holy. In the days ahead... 
we are hoping to create an environment here that will facilitate and encourage us as a body to make serious attempts to build relationships in our community for the purpose of gospel proclamation. Part of the simplifying of the church calendar is so that we might be outside the castle walls. Making relationships with people, neighbors, friends, people we work with. Real relationships. That we might share a transformed life with them to make gospel disciples. Carol and I are praying currently about how to become involved in our community. I don't have an answer yet. We are still praying and talking. What is it that she and I can do together as a couple to become involved in our community so that we will begin to make true friendships with people in this community that we might share our life in Christ with them? Where we'll go, what we'll do, I don't know yet. But we're praying. I ask you, are you willing to join us in prayer along the same lines for your own lives? Maybe some of you, you're already doing it, I know. Maybe you're involved in the garden club. That'd be a good thing. Aren't you pray that God enables you in the garden club to, to make real relationships with people in the community? That you might have them into your home. That you might live a life of Christian devotion before them. And as the conversations will inevitably turn to why are you so different? That you might then speak to them about what Christ has done for you. It's going to be hard to change the way we've been doing things. A culture doesn't change overnight. But by God's grace, we can change. And we must change. And we will change. That the Lord Jesus Christ will be preeminent in all that we do. And it's to that end we pray. Join me, please. Our Father, it is so easy for us to take that which is good and twist it so that it becomes a a bent caricature of reality. O Lord, as James has spoken to us this morning with regard to these really good activities of reading the Scriptures and listening to the the Scriptures taught and preached and being part of a local body and attending and participating. Oh, Lord, these are good things, and yet we can twist them around till they become that caricature and they no longer represent reality. Our Father, may You help us. May You pour Your grace upon us. May You enable us in the days to come. Enable us, O Lord, to think seriously again about what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples. 
For our Father, when you saved us, you left us here for only one purpose. Discipleship is what it is. Please, O Lord, by your Spirit, may you enable us to do what you desire of us to do. We pray in Jesus' name.